If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to actually look at two passages, Romans 5 and Luke chapter 7. And uh, we're going to spend some time in that. We're talking about the organic God. If you were with us last week, we defined a little bit about that, what that was. It's not that there's no chemical or pesticides or fer fertilizers. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about cutting through the things that we have added to God. Those things that we feel like should be God, but not what God has revealed to himself. We want to get back to what the Bible reveals, what God himself has revealed about the pure, unpolluted version of who God is. And so that's what we're looking at, the organic God. And today we're looking at the organic God as, as the big-hearted God. Is God big-hearted? Is God big-hearted? There's a lot of times that we, we think of that, and, and I've known several big-hearted people. I went to school with a, a, a couple of guys. Uh, Jack Easley was in my grade. His brother Rick was a couple of years older than, than that. And Jack and Rick Easley were great friends of ours. They came to church with us. We, we got to know them well. Uh, Jack Easley was a tremendous basketball player. He, he convinced me that I did not need to try out for high school basketball after watching me play. He said, George, your skills are better used elsewhere. And I said, where else? He said, anywhere else. But Jack was a tremendous ball player. His dad was a mechanic, and one time I was over at Jack Easley's house, and I was playing pickup basketball, and he was just killing me. He went on to uh, start for the University of Missouri uh, uh, on their team and uh, played semi-pro for a while. So, I mean, he was a tremendous basketball player, and Jack had just killed me. And uh, when we got done, he said, do you need a ride home? And his dad said, you need a ride? You're 17 years old. Why do you need a ride? And I said, well, I don't have a car. And I was bemoaning. I was the fourth driver, the only two cars. And the station wagon never went out. And the other car, you know, my, my brothers always got first shot at it. And his dad said, well, I'm going to the police auction. Would you like me to pick you up a car? And I said, well, I have $500, and 440 of it has to go for my liability insurance. So I have $60 left to buy a car. He said, no problem. I can get you one for that. So he bought me a 1963 Ford Falcon convertible for $45, and he towed it home for free. <laughs> he had to because it didn't have any tires on the front or a key or a starter or a battery. Uh, it had been a stolen car, sold at a police, police auction. Somebody had, after they had they deserted the car, they had taken both the front wheels and the tires and the starter and the battery and some other things. And it didn't have a key to start it or to even get into the trunk. And so I didn't know what was in there. And he towed it home to free. I said that Lee Easley, Jack and, and uh, Rick Easley's dad, was a big-hearted guy. Because over the period of the next 18 months, he helped me put that car together and taught me so much about mechanics. He was a mechanic, had his own shop. And he would let the 17-year-old guy come in and watch and learn to do what, to put rings and bearings and, and pop, uh, pop the, the, uh, the cylinder out of the door so I could get a key made and get me into the trunk of the car and just on and on and on. Just a big-hearted guy. My dad didn't think he was big-hearted. He just thought he was foolish. But that's... Have you ever known somebody who's big-hearted? Have you ever questioned whether God, whether God is big-hearted? Is he caring? Is he compassionate? Is he loving? Uh, John Feinberg, Dr. John Feinberg, who is the chairman of the Biblical Systematic Theology Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, began to question whether God was big-hearted, whether God loved him, because in 1987, his wife, Pat, was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. He wrote a little book called Where is God? This man who has written all kinds of theological journals and in, in all kinds of theological journals has written theological masterpieces came to the point where he wondered if God was really concerned about him. Is he big-hearted when it comes to his life? 
And at the very end, his wife of this little book called Where Is God? His wife dictates the last chapter before she got to a point where she could not do that. And I believe she's gone home to be with the Lord now. But this is, this is the quote that, that stood out to me. This, she said, this got me through some of the days when it got the hardest. She said, I began to re- read about the faith of Helen Keller, born blind, born, or, or was blind and, and was deaf, and uh, really struggled in, in so many different ways. And this is what Pat Feinberg said. She, she said, when I read this quote, it made me realize. And Helen Keller once said, the most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And then Helen Keller went on to say, and the most beautiful thing in the world is God's love for me. And I thought, wow. Why should we even worry about this? I mean, if God is love, he's not God, he's still God. Uh, if he's not love, he's still God. So why does it make any difference? And then I ran across this scripture, Psalm 107, 43. And, and it, this just really has grabbed my heart all this year. It says, whoever is wise, let him heed these things and consider the great love of the Lord. If you're wise, you need to consider these things. Who is God? We need to cut through the pollution. We need to discover who this God is, this loving God, as he models it, as he describes it, as he defines it. How much can we understand and rely on the love of God? Is God big-hearted? Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to ask this question, have we explored the extent of God's love? And the truth is, no, we have not. We have not explored it. And, and all of this, everything that I've, that I've uh, come up with, just as far as the whole concept at least, is in a little book called The Organic God. Margaret Feinberg, not related to John Feinberg that I just uh, quoted from, and Pat Feinberg. But Margaret Feinberg wrote this little book, 30-something years old, a tremendous Uh, new theologian and Bible scholar, and uh, I've loved what I've read in that. And we're going to ask the question, have we explored the extent of God's love? Look at at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Look at what it says. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We were talking and singing about the glory of God. Uh, you know, we don't start worship when we get here. We should worship the Lord and, and who He is and the glory of who He is all the time. Look at verse 3. But not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces per- perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a an incredibly important passage in the middle of an incredibly important book that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. And as he was writing it, he knew that many people were struggling with some of the concepts that he was, that he was handing out. And when he got to this whole subject of why do people suffer? Why are there people in this world 
that their life is not what they want it to be, and, and their dreams are shattered, and their lives are shattered. We, we talked about this little baby that was born that was without oxygen for 11 minutes. Why would God allow something like this to happen? Can he really love us? If that's true, those things happen. If he is all-powerful, why could he not change that? And if he's all-powerful, then he must not be all-loving. How could you be a loving God and a powerful God and allow those things to go on? And Paul is trying to put those together when he says, don't you understand, even the suffering point us back to the love of God. Even the sufferings point us back to the power of God because God is all-powerful and he is all-loving. And Paul really uses a, a fully dimensional view of this. Look at the first thing that he says, God's merciful love redeems my past. He starts in our past. How would you like it if, if what we did is we went around and we actually went to your computers and we found the, the nastiest thing on your computer, the worst thing that you've ever done, the email that you wish you'd never written, the thing that you'd never thought that would be on a screen? What if we flash that up on the screen right now? Is there something in your past that you wish you'd not done? Oh, come on. Go look at your high school yearbook. Look at your pictures. There's some things you just should not have bought. There's, there's some hairstyles you should not have worn. I mean, there's some things in there that we regret about our past, and the Lord says, I've redeemed your past. I've bought it back, and I've made it into something new and wonderful and great. God's love displayed on the cross gave us access by faith into his grace. And there are no stipulations, there are no exceptions for past failure. God doesn't say, I'll, I'll let you come as long as you haven't done this. There's no stipulation there. He says, come to you, you who are weary, those of you who are broken, those of you whose lives are shattered, those of you who made a mess of it before you came to me. And that's truly all of us. And he says, come to me. God calls the least likely to be his children. Last week we were talking about Jonah just a little bit, and I referenced Jonah and the submarine ride and all of that. But it, it, I just keep coming back to Jonah because I think of all the people God could have called, he was the first overseas missionary. He was the first one to leave his home to go to another land that, that was a foreign missionary in that sense because there was another culture, another people. He was to go to these people that hated Israel, and he was to try to win them to Jesus Christ, to try to win them to God. And Jonah did not want to do it. I, I want to say to God, was there no one else other than Jonah that you could use? I mean, there had to be somebody that was a more likely prospect than this guy. In Jonah, it, the book of Jonah 1, 1, it says, God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell these people that I'm going to destroy them. And in verse 3, look at what it says in Jonah 1, 3, but Jonah ran from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Jonah, I've got a job for you to do. No, God, I'm not going to do that. He literally says no to God and runs the other direction. God uses his past. What's, what really blows me away is if you go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, Jesus is speaking of Jonah in the highest of terms. And he says, don't you understand, Joseph's ex uh, Jonah's experience while he was in the belly of the whale is just like I'm going to experience when, I'm, when I die and I'm buried. And he uses Jonah as a positive example. God uses the least likely of us and God wants us to understand that. And that's why I believe when we come to Christmas time and we have all the beautiful decorations, and I love the trees. Thank you so much for everybody. Don't you love the way it looks in here? That's amazing. 17 trees across the front. Beautiful tree in the foyer. Beautiful tree down in the gathering place. But we have all of these, and every time I get this, this uh, manger out, this wooden manger in the front, people kind of like, you know, it doesn't really go with everything else. C couldn't we get a little nicer manger? 
Well, Jesus didn't have one that nice. In fact, his was probably carved out of stone. It was just a hollowed out stone that they put some food in for the cattle. And I think the very fact that Jesus came to this earth, fully God, fully man, powerfully speaks of his love. Let's face it. I'm not one of these guys. There's some of you who like to go camping, and you like to go camping where you have just maybe a sleeping bag, or you, you know, you don't care if you have a tent. You certainly don't care if you have an RV. I like to go camping as long as there's four stars in the hotel name. Okay, I don't want numbers. Not Motel Six and you know Motel Eight. You know, I wouldn't. We're not doing any. I don't do that. I like a clean bed and I like a sanitary kitchen. So when I go on a mission trip and I go to Jamaica and they say, here's where you're going to sleep and it's a concrete floor, I'm not real thrilled about it. And then they say, this is where you're going to use the facilities. It's an outhouse. And because it's really hot in Jamaica, they, they cut the doors up so they come to about your knees. So you're kind of exposed out there. And while you're sitting there doing your business, chickens would walk through. It was a multi-hole you know, deal, and they would come through as the guys were out there. It was really a lot of fun. And then we're chopping the roots. We're making this, this, the foundation. You had to chop the roots out because it's a jungle, and we're chopping the roots with a machete, and they say, it's 4.30, we need the machete, and they wipe it twice as they go over, and then they begin to cut our dinner with it, the same machete. I don't want that. And Jesus leaves perfection with angels attending him. And the glory of the greatest sunrise you've ever seen is nothing compared to the glory of heaven. And all his adoring angels and those who are there, and he leaves them, and he comes down, and he's placed as an embryo and a fetus, eventually born as a baby. And where is he placed? In straw, in hay, in rags that are wrapped around his little body to keep him from shivering, and, and he lies trembling in hay. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. So that our past could be resolved when we come to him. Who did he choose to display his love? Look at, at the description. It says at verse 6, we were still powerless it says we're not the righteous ones. In, in verse 8, it calls us sinners. It goes on, it says that we're ungodly. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. If you go to verse 10, it talks about that we were enemies. Literally, the picture is someone who shakes their fist in the face of another. We were shaking our fist in the face of God, and God loved us and redeemed us and transformed us. Into what? He, he gave us mercy. We did not get what we deserved. We were transformed by the mercy of God in our past. We did not get what we deserved. And he gives us grace, something we could never earn. Ephesians 3.20 says he is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Number two, not only does he take care of our past, look at what he does, does in, the, in the present. God's transforming love gives life purpose now. He gives us purpose in what we're doing right now. God's promise, God promises to go with us through the adventure. He, he says, I'm going to be there on the journey. I'm going to blaze the trail. I'm going to go out, and, and it's easier when things are going well. 
Margaret Feinberg, in, in this book, at one point says, God is very big-hearted. He doesn't just give us what we ask for or even just what we need. He gives us more and in the process invites us into a deeper relationship with Him. And in her, in her chapter where she's describing just a little bit of the love of God and, and really focuses more on the love of her father for her, she's talking about what a wonderful upbringing she had as they went from place to place and they lived in Florida and the, the mountains and her parents were ski instructors for a while. How come I never lived where my parents were ski instructors? I lived in Kansas City. That was just, you know, but she's talking about this wonderful thing and she's talking about how, God good, how, how good God is. And then I read her blog this week called Game Changer. On July 8th, 2013, Margaret Feinberg was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it had gotten to her lymph nodes. A hundred days later, her father was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. She says, God never promised me an easy life, but he promised purpose in the life that he gave me. And Paul, as he's writing, says, do you understand that even when you're going through the suffering, even when you're going through the trials, even when you're going through those things that you never anticipate because we always think it will happen to someone else, he says that you can persevere. That's not just, not just be, to be squeezed into some mold. To persevere means that you fight back. To persevere means that you apply pressure back to that. That's literally what it's saying. You're applying pressure back, allowing it to develop character. And, and that's what you do. We talk about resistance training when we're, when we're working out and you have dumbbells or you have some kind of elastic something or whatever. You use your body weight. When you're doing a push-up, you're resisting your body's weight. And he says, listen, just in the spiritual life, these things that come around you, these things that you think are horrible are actually being used by God to form us into the person he wants us to be, to develop the character. And Job 23.10, it says, when he tested me, uh, when he tests me, I'll come out forth, I'll come forth as gold. When he tests me, I'll come forth as gold. I'll be purified. I'll be stronger. I'll be refined. I will be the person that God has called me to be. God even takes the negatives right now and turns them into a positive. And we don't get that. The disciples didn't get it. When they were walking with Jesus and, and they come in John chapter 9 and, and, and they, they see this blind man. Who, was, who sinned this man or his, his parents that he was born blind? We looked at that last week. But at the very end of the story, they come and they question him. The, the, the religious officials are questioning him and says, uh, deny that this man is, is the, the Savior. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And the Lord says this blind man in, in John chapter 9 was here for his glory. And in his love, he stopped by to see the man to make sure that he saw, that he saw before the end of his life. But God's transforming love gives life purpose now. Gordon Mode is going to come and be with us next Christmas at the, the first week in December. We've already booked him. He's going to do a Christmas concert. He doesn't normally do that. And when Gordon was here the last time, we were standing in the back waiting for him to come out on Sunday morning, and I was talking with him for a minute, and he knows John, our son, and, and knows about him because I'm John's biggest fan, and I'm talking to Gordon and telling him, and Gordon's talking back about some of the people that he's played for that John knows, and, you know, this thing, and I'm talking with Gordon for a minute, and I said, Gordon, do you ever miss it when you're on your, on your tour? Do you ever miss not having your sight? And he said, oh, if I'd had sight, I never would have been anybody. 
I could have seen, I would have played basketball, and I, I would have been a terrible basketball player. I'm too short. If I'd had sight, I would never have concentrated on my music and my testimony for Jesus Christ. He said, I thank God every day that I don't have my sight. I thought, wow. He gets it. God's transforming love gives life purpose. Now, look at the third one. God's extravagant love offers hope for my future. God's extravagant hope, uh, love offers hope for my future. Hope does not disappoint us. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed? My Chiefs started out 9-0, and and they've lost the last three games. I know it's not a big deal to you, but the Kansas City Chiefs, the last time they were in the Super Bowl, January 11th, 1970, before many of you were born. And you're saying, uh, who cares? You know, the truth is, after this many years, I can't be disappointed in the Chiefs. <laughs> They're probably not going to get to the Super Bowl, but that's okay. Have you ever really truly been disappointed? I remember one of the greatest disappointments I had when I was 20-something years old. There was a call on Sunday morning. It was from my Uncle Henry. My cousin Michael had cystic fibrosis. He'd been doing very well. He was the oldest surviving person with cystic fibrosis at that point in his life. He'd been doing well, and the doctors were talking about the possibility of lung transplants or something else and, and some new things that were coming out. They were real excited about it, and Michael went to sleep on Saturday night. His dad normally went in and pounded on his chest to loosen the things, the phlegm, and the things that were keeping him from breathing, and he did it just as usual. And on Sunday morning, he went down to wake Michael up, and he wasn't there. He was home with the Lord. I was disappointed in God. I thought, God, of all the people, Michael loves you so much, and, and all of these things are going well, and I, and I was upset. I was disappointed with God, and I shouldn't have been. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Does he give you all that you ask for? Well, you're in good company. All but one of the 12 disciples, Judas went and hung himself. Ten of the other 11 were martyred, we were told, according to Fox's book of martyrs. And, and there's pretty good historical evidence that that's what happened. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this huge, you know, by faith this person did this, and by faith this person did that. But when you get to verse 35, it starts talking about tortured, those who were tortured, those who were flogged, those who were put in chains, those who were put in prison, those who were stoned, who were sawed in two, they were destitute, they were persecuted, they were mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And you say, Pastor, you're not giving me much hope here. You're not giving me much hope here. But if you go on to see the whole picture of that in chapter 12, it says, don't you understand there's this great cloud of witnesses that one day we're going to walk into the arena of God and we're going to see what all of these people have learned from all they've gone through and the hope that they received even in the midst of their pain and their torment and their struggle. And I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your struggle is right now. I don't know what you're going through in your life. But whatever it is, God says there is hope. Why? Because in verse 5 it says, God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
Maybe spiritually, maybe, maybe emotionally, you came today and you are parched. Maybe you came today and you've, and you've lost someone that you loved or, or someone's struggling in their health or some, something is happening in your, your marriage or your family or your children. Maybe you come today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I just didn't come with a whole lot of hope and, I, and I'm so dry, I'm just, I'm dehydrated, I'm parched. And what it says literally there is, and hope does not disappoint us because God has has lavished, has poured out his love. He says, when you're parched, go stand under the waterfall of God's love. And let it inundate you. Let it just pour down who you are into your life, into your soul. That's the picture all the way through the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. How does God love us? In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God hums when you're sleeping. God sings over you in those times. And you say, well, I wish he would just do what I want him to do. And he says, no, I love you too much to do that. I'm so interested in your character and your person, who you are, that I'm going to do those things that you need more than anything else. Have we explored the extent of God's love? People, I've been preaching now for almost 40 years. Over the last 40 years, I've given a lot of messages, a lot of study into God's love, and I have not even begun to scratch the surface. Have we explored it? Well, do we exemplify the results of God's love? That's the second part. I want you to turn over to to Luke chapter 7. This story, again, fascinates me. We've looked at it before. We've talked about it before. But I want to look at it from a little different angle today. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It's a, it's a shocking story. It's, it's a story that many people wish were not, was not in the Bible because it's not something that's all that pleasant to have. But look at what happens in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, we know later that it will be Simon. One of the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. They sat at the table, literally sat on the floor on a cushion, and their feet kind of went back away from them. You know where your mom always told you not to lean on the table? In Jewish circles, you had to lean on the table. It was a wonderful way to eat for those of us that like to have our face close to the food. But that's what they were doing. Look at verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life, that's a nice way of saying that she was immoral. She was probably a prostitute. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, when she learned it, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. And then he has this little back and forth with Simon, and, and, and he helps him understand that if you owed this huge debt and someone paid it off, you would love that person more than if you owed just a little debt and that debt was paid off. Pick it up in, uh, in verse 44. Then he turned to this woman and said to Simon. Now get the picture again. The woman's standing here, and Simon, say, is standing right here. He, he turns to the woman, and he says to Simon. He's looking at her and speaking to Simon. Don't miss that. Do you see this woman? He focuses on her. 
I came into your house, but you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. What do we learn from this? How do we embody, how do we exemplify the results of God's love? Number one, is my love active? Is my love active? What a scene. Jesus encounters this, this, this uh, shows us this encounter between a religious giant and an immoral peasant woman, a prostitute. And the one we least expect to understand is the one who shows this incredible display of love, this, this incredible display of God's love in a powerful, tangible way. Joseph Soul wrote a, a book called Loving Christ, and the whole book is on this one story. But in one of the chapters, he says, when our love for Christ moves beyond a mere mental ascent, ascent to a living reality, it motivates us to deal with life in unique and powerful ways, regardless of circumstances. You see, Simon claimed to love Jesus. He, claimed, he, he said all the right words. He, he did all those right things. But she acted on it. Simon, who was this religious, religious giant who knew the Old Testament, who knew all the prophecies, should have recognized Jesus as the Christ. She just recognized Jesus as her Savior. She didn't know all this other stuff. She didn't say much, but she acted tremendously. Real love changes the way we live. Is that not true? Do people do crazy things for love? My wife grew up in South Dakota. You know how many Mexican places there are in South Dakota? None. At least in Kadoka, South Dakota. She had never had Mexican food. And she went out to eat with me on one of our first dates. And I love Mexican food. I grew up in Kansas City, and there are a lot of Hispanic uh, people there, a lot of, uh, a lot of Mexican places to eat. And so I grew up loving Mexican food. And I grew up when Mexican food, I mean, when you put it in your mouth, if it didn't make your forehead sweat, it wasn't hot enough. And so we go out to eat the first time, and she says, she said, what would you get? And I said, I would get this, and I would get these. And I, and I said, I really like the, the chili verde. I like the green chilies. I like this sauce on it. It's really a great sauce. And she says, is it hot? And I said, oh, no, it's not bad at all. <laughs> it brings tears to her eyes thinking about that time. She'd never. Love makes us do crazy things in food. Love makes us do crazy things in music. I've known guys who can't stand to go and listen to concerts, but when their wife said, I want to go listen to this concert, they will leave a football game to go watch a concert. We do crazy things for love. Well, there's all kinds of things that we do about that. There have been people who have walked away from well. 1 John 3.18 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. She didn't just get busy. She, she was worshiping him. And I think it's such a powerful scene that he's standing there and he's talking about you at my feet. And you put perfume on my body. And you wiped my feet. And you showed me love. And I forgive your sins. And he's, the whole time he's looking into this face of this woman who adores him. 
Is my love active? Number two, is my love intentional? Did you notice, I, I even went back and, and kind of emphasized it. This is no spontaneous knee-jerk reaction. She, it says she heard, she knew Jesus was coming to Simon's house. She went and got the perfume. She brought the perfume with her. She looked for the opportunity. She considered the risk. She went for it. How could she do this? She had complete assurance in her heart that if Jesus loved her, and I don't know what encounter she'd had with him before, but something told her that Jesus Christ would be forgiving and loving. So when she did this and she saw the snub that, that Simon did by not washing his feet, that was common courtesy in those days. They were walking on dusty ground. To walk into somebody's house and not have their feet washed, was, that, was, that was a horrible thing. To, to not put a little perfume on his head or to give him a hug or a kiss to greet him, it would be like not shaking hands with somebody that stretches their hand out to you. I mean, it was just unheard of, and she saw that, and she had to react to that. And she was intentional that Jesus would be with her each step of the way. Isaiah 43, 2 says that, that God is intentional about his love. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You think about what Isaiah wrote there, and then you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They literally walked through the flames and were not burned up. And the Lord says, listen, I'm intentional about my love because it does not say we're not going to go through the waters. It does not say we're not going to go through the rivers. It does not say that we're not going to walk through the fire. But he is with us, and his intention is to never let go of our hands. He's intentional in his love. Our oldest granddaughter now is almost 16 years old. And when she first came to see us, we were in Southern California living in Holtville. And it was very, very hot. And there was a, a pool available to us. And we, would, we didn't have a swimming pool, but we could go to this pool. And when we got to the pool, she said, Papa, I'm afraid of water. I'm terrified. And I mean, she would, she would sit on the edge of the pool and put her feet in, but that was about as far in as she would get. And day after day, we would go back to the pool, and I, finally I got her sitting in the water. And, and the next trip out, I got her a pair of, of diving goggles. You know, someday, scuba dive, you know. So I, I got her scuba diving goggles, and I told her uh, how wonderful it was. And she got the goggles on, and eventually we'd get her, her face under the water. And, and little by little, I, I, I mean, every time she came, I had another plan to take her a little further. And, and eventually she had, she had dolphin rides and then whale rides. I was the dolphin. I was the whale. She would get on my back, and at first we would just go across the top, and then we would go a little deeper, and then we would go a little deeper, and finally she'd get on my back, and she'd say, let's go, whale, let's hit the bottom. And I would swim to the bottom of that pool, and I would come up, and we would, she would laugh, and one day I was standing there, and she was standing by the side of the pool, and she had taken her goggles off, and all of a sudden she just leaped, leapt out from the side there, into the pool. I wasn't ready for her. I didn't know she was going to do it. And I grabbed her up quickly because she kind of hit the bottom and came up looking surprised. And I grabbed her and I said, Ashley, what are you doing? And she says, don't worry, Papa. I knew you wouldn't let me go. And the Lord says, don't worry. Take the leap of faith. I'm never going to let you go. Is my love active? Is my love intentional? Is my love extravagant? Joseph Stoll writes it this way, the mediocrity of our Christianity becomes nakedly apparent when we stop to consider the last time we did something radical, risky, or expensive to simply say to Christ, you are worth it all and more. 
the greater the risk, the more expensive the gift, the more costly the sacrifice, the lower the level of service, the bigger the statement of love and worth. Perfume was a luxury. They didn't have Macy's counters. They couldn't go to Penny's. They couldn't get it online. They, they, they had to, I mean, perfume was extremely expensive, extremely rare. Some women never had a bottle of perfume their whole life. And if you did, it was saved for very special occasions. This was not something you just used rampantly. It was not something you used unwisely. It was so special. And she broke that alabaster jar. And literally it says that she poured it over him. She used every drop. Why would she make that kind of sacrifice? She met someone who knew who she was, what she had done, who loved her anyway. She met someone who had hope for her future and a plan for her present. Not that he would just put up with her, but that he would cherish her, that he would choose her. Isaiah 43.1 says this, But now this is what the Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I summoned you by, ma- by name. He knows your name. And then look at the last phrase. You are mine. Margaret Feinberg says, you are mine is not a consolation prize, it's a promise. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by, ma- by name. You are mine. We can be purified from the cheap love found in this world. We can come into the the unbelievable love of Jesus Christ. It's not a love full of unnatural additives. It's the pure thing. We enter a life-sustaining, life-infusing relationship with him. There's a, one of my favorite devotional stories. It's, It's called The Whisper Test. It's about Marianne Bird. I've used this illustration before, but I did a little research this week and found out something I did not know about this. Marianne Bird was born with multiple uh, birth defects. She, had, uh, she was deaf in one ear. She had, was blind in one eye. She had a cleft palate. Her face was disfigured. She had a crooked nose, lopsided teeth. Her speech was so garbled, many people could not understand her very well. The truth is she had a tumor. When she was three years old, her parents dropped her off at a home and said, we can't afford to care for her anymore. We don't know what to do with her. It was a Catholic children's home, and her parents left her there when she was three. At the school, the the other kids that lived there at the school, all of them were not the, the, the cream of society, but they were all prettier than Marianne Bird. They made fun of her. When they would say, why is your mouth like that? Why do you have this cleft palate? Why do you have all these things in your face? She would say, well, I was running as a little girl and I fell on glass and, and I cut my lip badly and that's why I look like I do. She said, it seemed better to have an accident than to think that God would make me deformed like this. And they teased her and they, they just would not get away from it. When she was in second grade, there was a second grade teacher by the name of Mrs. Leonard, and she was not part of the Catholic school. She actually was a gal who went to a Baptist church there in the south, southeast. She said they, they were missing a second grade teacher. She said, I'll come in and teach for you one year, and the, the kids all fell in love with her. She was short, round, happy, a sparkly lady, as they described her. 
And the kids all loved her. They all wanted to sit in her lap. They thought she was special. And every year they would have a hearing test. And because Marianne was deaf in one ear, she would always try to cheat. Instead of covering her ear, she would try to cup it and, and maybe try to hear a little something out of it. And, and, and she was always trying to, to make sure. And Mrs. Leonard gave the test. And the way it worked is they would have the girl stand at the doorway and she would sit at her desk and she would say a phrase like, your shoes are blue or the, the, the sky is blue or your shoes are lovely. And the child had to repeat it back to her. And this is the way... Marianne, the next year, wrote what happened. I waited there for those words that God must have put in Mrs. Leonard's mouth. She said seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Marianne Bird, for the first time, had somebody tell her, that they loved her. Mrs. Leonard was only going to teach one year, but she couldn't stay away from the school, and so she continued to teach. She asked to be put in the next grade, and she was actually the third grade teacher when she did ask them to all write the most, uh, an essay about the time that they felt most loved, and that's when Marianne wrote this essay. Leonard Sweet is the first one who quoted this, and I took him at his word, and it turned out the research was not done exactly right because he says that she went on to be a teacher herself and, and to impact a lot of people. That's actually not true. Marianne Bird lived the rest of her life at the school. Mrs. Leonard went in to wake her up one day when she didn't make it to class when she turned 13. And the week before Christmas, they found Marianne Bird still lying in her bed with a Bible on her chest. She'd gotten, it up, she'd gotten up early and had read her devotions for the morning and it was turned to Isaiah 43. And you could hardly read the last part where it says, you are mine. Because she'd circled it so much time at 11 and 12 and 13 years of age. She circled it and circled it because that was her promise when she came to know Jesus Christ because Mrs. Leonard led her to Jesus Christ. From the time she was nine to the time she was 13, Marianne Bird led more, more of those girls to Jesus Christ than any teacher that has ever worked at that school. And Mrs. Leonard eventually wrote the book called The Memoirs of, of Mary Ann to honor this little girl that changed her life. My question is, if our earthly love could transform the life of one poor little girl, what could God's love do in our hearts and in our lives because God saw us and we had this tumor called sin and it marred us and it, make, it made our speech almost unintelligible and he loves us so much he looks beyond those scars and he says I love you this much and he stretched out his arms and he proved it would you bow your heads close your eyes Father, you are not just big-hearted. You are so loving, and you are so good. And your love is just one of your many attributes. Because you're holy, your love is pure. Because you are immense, your love has no end. Because you are eternal, your love has no beginning or no end. Because you are all-powerful, your love transforms lives. 
Thank you, Father, for who you are, for allowing us to catch a glimpse of this love. And Father, may we be changed by that love in our lives, in our hearts, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our passions. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing. As we sing this closing song, maybe you need to do some business with the Lord. You can come and sit on, the, the, on a chair in the front. We'll have one of the deacons, one of their wives, come sit and pray with you. We won't embarrass you, but this is your time to do business with the Lord as we sing.